0: So I know several of you have heard the story of how we first came to look at this place and uh, made the decision to to purchase it. So just briefly, we had come here—Joseph uh, Goldstein and Jack Cornfield and I and several people involved—right in the beginning, and we come here in December of 1975. We had. Uh, each come back from Asia just a couple of years before. Joseph and I from India and Jack from Thailand. And we'd begun teaching in this very kind of casual way where somebody would write us a letter and say, well, I can get together some friends and a cook. Will you come teach a retreat? We would teach that retreat, and then at the end, we never knew if there'd be another retreat until the next letter would arrive, and we just kind of wandered around doing that. When somebody said to us, well, what do you think about establishing a center in this country? It would be a kind of sacred site. It would be a place that could really serve as the repository for the kind of energy that gets developed when people come together to practice So we said, yeah, that sounds good. And to the deep regret of many people now, most of the enthusiasm for this project was on the East Coast. And people say, you could have had anywhere. (laughs) You know, there was nothing. (laughs) You could have had Hawaii. (laughs) But it was on the East Coast. So we we looked up and down the East Coast for quite a while, uh, looking for a facility. And finally, somebody suggested that we come here. Uh, at that point, this place was a novitiate owned by the Catholic Church. And so we came here one day in December, and we were quite confused about whether to go ahead and buy it or not. On the one hand, it seemed really perfect. It's so quiet and placid and pretty, and on the other hand, it seemed really big. I mean, here we were just leading this this very kind of almost haphazard existence, not really sure how many people in this country would be interested in meditation or this form of meditation. So we couldn't decide what to do, and we went to downtown Barry in our confusion to have lunch. Uh, Barry, those of you who pass through it know that... (laughs) It's a very uh, classic New England town with the town green just in the middle of it. And in those days, on the town green, there was a monument which had engraved upon it the Barry Town motto, which is tranquil and alert. So we took a look at that, and we said, okay, there's an omen. Any town that has a motto like tranquil and alert should have a meditation center in it. And so we went ahead and did it. And here we are all these years later. Now the building was, was built in many parts. This original part behind me, you know, the, the main part, was actually built as a private home. It was a mansion built by someone named Colonel Gaston, who at one point was the lieutenant governor of Massachusetts. I think um, the walking room behind me was the ballroom and the, the yoga room was the billiards room. And, um, so it turns out from uh, one of my friends reading the rather small volume, which is the history of the town of Barry, that Colonel Gaston himself had a kind of motto that he tried to live by, which was, you should live every day so you can look any damn man in the eye and tell him to go to hell. <laughs> So my first thought about that was, I wonder how well he got along with his neighbors, who (laughs) perhaps were going around trying to be tranquil and alert. (laughs) But I think of that, and I often tell those two stories in juxtaposition, because I think we do tend to have a kind of motto that we live by, each of us conscious or unconscious a sense of what our lives are about what we're dedicated to what we're capable of sometimes it's something like you should look any damn man in the eye and be able to tell him to go to hell and sometimes it's not and the sense of aspiration this vision of what our lives can be is something that we, we see constantly As we go within, we see our sense of limitation. We see how often that's just a construct. We see the transparency of that construct. We learn to expand. We learn to open. We learn to break open our sense of who we can be, what our lives are about. I had a Tibetan teacher, a master named Nyoshal Kenrenbache, who was very kind of pointed about this, he would say, in a I mean this is a kind of bad paraphrase, but he would say, Why is your sense of aspiration so small? Why is it so meager? He said, why not aspire to be a fully liberated being for the sake of all beings? Why not? And I think some amount, at any rate, of our investigation as we go within, is that why not? We see our fears and our doubts about ourselves, our ideas, and we see how conditioned they actually are. Sometimes I tell the story about this time when Joseph and I and some friends were moving into a house that someone had rented for us to do a retreat in down on the Cape. And when I went into the bedroom that had been set aside for me, I saw that someone had left a cartoon on the desk from the Peanuts comic strip. In the first frame of the cartoon, Lucy is talking to Charlie Brown, and she says, You know, Charlie Brown, what your problem is, the problem with you is that you're you. Then in the the second frame, poor Charlie Brown looks at her and says, well, what in the world can I do about that? (laughs) Then in the the third and final frame, she looks at him and says, I don't pretend to be able to give advice. I merely point out the problem. (laughs) So you think about that. Poor Charlie Brown probably his entire life had suspected if he'd gone within and saw who he really was, it would be a big problem somehow, whenever I was doing walking meditation in the room, my eye would fall on that precise line, the problem with you is that you're you. So often, we, we have incorporated that Lucy voice. And it, it deeply affects our sense of aspiration, our sense of possibility, our vision of our, <clears throat> ourselves and our place in life. And what we do in practice is learn how to see or hear Lucy as Lucy to recognize the impermanent nature of that, the conditioned nature of that, to have awareness, to have compassion, not to necessarily follow that voice along and have it define our entire sense of life. In contrast to Lucy, think of the Buddha, who said that the mind is naturally radiant and pure. The mind is shining. That's not like four-fifths of people, you know, have a mind that is naturally radiant and pure, whereas the rest are kind of condemned, to something else. The mind is naturally radiant and pure. The mind is shining. It's because of visiting forces that we suffer. <clears throat> These forces of greed and, and hatred and delusion and jealousy and envy and, and all of that. But they're just visiting. They're not who we really are. And so our sense of aspiration can grow. Why not? Aspire to be a free being for the sake of all beings. Another whole aspect of our practice is energetically very different than that growth and expansion of, of our aspiration. It, it is more about learning how to surrender, to be at ease, to be patient, to let things take their time. Because the truth is, as we know, that in fact, dreams come true one step at a time. That's how things are made real. We cannot hurry along a process. Joseph tells a story sometimes about being about nine years old, I think, when he he grew his first, and I believe his only, garden. And he said that when the little green fluffy stuff would start coming up on top of the carrots, he'd get so excited that he'd pull them up to make them grow faster. (laughs) We can be so like that. Let's help this carrot along. (laughs) But things take their time. They unfold. And when we engage in something like a process of transformation. There's a great deal of mystery involved as well. One of my teachers used this example. He said, to grow in practice, to make progress in practice, is like taking a piece of wood and hitting it with an axe in order to split it. He said, maybe you hit it 99 times, nothing happens. You hit it the hundredth time, and it breaks open. Mostly, we then stand there and think, well, what did I do differently the hundredth time that I didn't do the other 99? Was my stance different, or was I, was I holding the axe differently? But really, every single one of those blows was important. Every single one of those blows Weaken the fiber of the wood in some way until, with the hundredth blow, it could break open. Now, of course, it doesn't feel very good, you know, number 34, number 35, number 36, nothing is happening. But really, something is happening. And to extend that image, it actually isn't even just the mechanical act of weakening the wood the fiber of the wood that is making the difference it's the very fact that we are persevering it's our heartfelt effort our our unstinting presence it's our humor and our sweat and our endeavor it's our willingness to keep going that's what's actually making for the transformation that's what's really breaking open so spiritual practice both in the formal sense of you know sitting Uh, in a dedicated way, and the way we bring those values into our life, all of that is held in that example. We've really entered a kind of mystery. It's not such a, a precisely linear, predictable process where we can say, oh yeah, yesterday I was really, really... Aware for five minutes. So today it's going to be fifteen, and tomorrow's going to be forty-five, and then, you know, it's it's very peculiar. There's so much asked of us in terms of a letting go, a willingness to keep trying, an ability to surrender. A surrender doesn't mean succumbing. It doesn't mean not caring. but it's having a perspective on life that's based on wisdom. When Susan talked about equanimity, equanimity in many ways is the articulation of wisdom. It's the voice of truthfulness in our lives that says we're not in control, that life has pleasure and pain, gain and loss, praise and blame, fame and disrepute, but that's the nature of things. As we practice, it's not that that flattens out. Sometimes people long for that. Flattening out, sometimes they fear it. But it's not going to happen anyway. you know. But there's, there's a common idea like we will get far enough in a practice and everything will just sort of fade into this gray amorphous blob and we won't feel anything anymore. Uh, no sorrow, but then no joy, no uh, intensity. It's not like that. Rather, there's the ability to see just what is with wisdom, with understanding. In the Tibetan tradition, sometimes they talk about looking at the thoughts that arise in your mind as though you were a very elderly person watching children play in a playground. Which is an image I liked quite a lot because there was a lot of tenderness there too. It wasn't like looking at those thoughts and saying, you fool, <laughs> you know, why are you taking that so seriously? That's just a little toy. There was kindness. There was, there was that kind of tenderness and, and closeness. But there's wisdom. There's perspective. It's just a little toy. So it's that kind of surrender, that, that being at ease with things needing to unfold. That's the other side of aspiration. Together, when we have a strong and growing aspiration and we have the wisdom of surrender or patience, that's what makes up what we call right effort in the practice Or realistic effort to have a really open heart about what our lives might look like. To know that tomorrow doesn't have to look like today, or the self-image maybe we've been carrying forever doesn't need to prevail. To so have a really big sense of possibility and the willingness to do what we need to do right now. That's right, effort. That's also faith, to have a very big vision and the energy to make that vision real. When we say right effort, or certainly when we say faith, that doesn't mean that there are never any periods of doubt or uncertainty but it's having a, a sense of being able to move forward, not being stuck, not being mired in, in some kind of driven habit of mind to see what is. And this, of course, is, is the kind of skill or uh, it's almost like a tool that meditation practice will afford, it will offer to us. Once when I was doing a, um, I went to a, a Hatha yoga um, center because my own teacher was there um, teaching. And I, they asked me to come give a talk and I said yes because I really wanted to uh, work with him. And... I kind of knew that in my talk, which was scheduled for right after lunch, I would speak about, um, I would use the Charlie Brown story, the Lucy story, but I didn't know that much more about what I would say. I spent the morning um, doing yoga with my teacher, um, and we got to the place where he said, well, Now we're going to do a wheel pose or back bend. And those of you who who don't do hatha yoga know that, or don't know, but you lie down um, in this pose and you put your hands up near your ears and somehow you're supposed to get up into this (laughs) kind of bow-looking thing. And I could never do it. I could never, ever do it. So I lied there. I thought, you're right, you know. And uh, I couldn't get up. And then uh, he came over to me and he said, did you get up? And I said, no, I never get up. So he kind of helped me up, and, and that was nice. And then I was sort of looking at my watch, thinking, well, you know, I've got to go get ready for my talk, and he should really hurry up here, and surely he's not going to make us do it again. And then he said, now we're going to do another one. And I thought, oh, yeah, right. So I lied down, and I put my hands up near my ears, and, and, uh, and then he said, now I want you all to let go of all self-limiting ideas about yourself. And I laughed, and I went up into this perfect, beautiful bow. I was so startled, I said out loud, oh my God, I'm up. (laughs) And then the very next thought that came up in my mind was, you'll never be able to do this again. But because I had kind of that vague image of the cartoon in my mind, knowing I was going to use it in my talk a little later, I heard that voice, you'll never be able to do this again. And I said, chill out, Lucy. (laughs) And that was it. That was enough. So it's that chill out, Lucy, that we are aiming for. (laughs) You know, it's not a sense of being defeated and hopeless and overcome because that voice has come up. It's having understanding, seeing it for what it is, knowing we don't have to be governed by that, we don't have to be entangled in that, having some fun with ourselves, having that kind of tenderness. That is really, it's like a a perfect expression, I think, of right effort. Sometimes we're filled with cravings. Sometimes we're filled with hatred. Sometimes we're filled with fear. Many times we're filled with doubt. But can we see it for what it is? There's a a Tibetan story about a bandit who... um, I think hurt many people. He he was a really big time thief and uh, he hurt a lot of people and then he went through some kind of experience where he experienced a great deal of remorse and so he went off to a meditation master, a great meditation master and he said to him, please help me. I'm really unhappy. Please help me be a better person. And and the master said, "Um, what are you good at? And the thief said, I'm not good at anything. And the master said, well, you must be good at something. So he thought a moment. He said, well, I'm really good at stealing. So uh, his teacher said, well, what I want you to do is go over there to that remote place and steal the sun and the moon and dissolve them in the, uh, in the field of emptiness, the belly of emptiness And so the the thief went off and did that. And as those stories all end so happily, he became fully enlightened (laughs) and a very great teacher and very renowned. What it means is, use what you're good at. You know, there's emptiness, there's transparency, there's wisdom, there's insight, there's impermanence, held everywhere. If what we're good at is doubt, then we use the doubt to learn the deeper nature of things, to learn about things arising and passing away, qualities of mind being conditioned. That's what we use. In the Chinese tradition, they have a saying, if you want to understand the nature of water, look at the waves. We have the waves of our mind, the waves of our heart. That's what we look at, because that's what's true right here and now. What's most important, I think, for all of us is that the application of what we care about be real. You know, that it's not theoretical, it's not tangential, it's not something we admire in others, like, isn't that nice, that thief got enlightened, you know? But that we make those values real for ourselves. When we're haunted by Lucy, when we're unhappy, when our lives are falling apart, it's up to us to claim some sense of of transformation, to claim the power of awareness, the power of love. Otherwise, it's just abstract. It's in the hands of somebody else. I first went to India in 1970 when uh, I had been a student in college, as I said. and. Um, took a course in Asian philosophy. And I think about that moment when I decided, I want to learn what this stuff is about. I want to learn what meditation can give me. And I was so unhappy, and my life was so confused. But somehow, there was just that kind of intuition, that inner knowing, that something could happen, and could happen for me. We can be so much in the habit of feeling like we're on the outside of possibility, that the good things of life are for others, and we're somehow left out. Or we might distantly admire the accomplishment of of somebody, or the Buddha, like, isn't that great? Sat under a tree, got enlightened. But what about us? You know, what about me? That's a fantastic moment, that moment of claiming, of saying, well, I'm going to see what can happen for me. And that's what we do every single time we practice. That's what we do every single moment that we're mindful. It comes down to a moment. It comes down to, really, this moment. We have to use what we're good at. We have to use what's here. We have to use what's arising. Because then everything we care about becomes real. Am I being mindful of this? Can I be aware of that? How much loving kindness is in my heart as I go through, for myself, as I go through this or or that? How connected do I feel to a, a bigger picture of life? When I was first practicing, I thought that qualities like mindfulness. Um were kind of a remote accomplishment. I thought, well, I'll struggle along here and someday I'll have a moment of mindfulness. But really it's not that hard. We have all had many, many, many moments of mindfulness. But we don't tend to have too many in a row. You know, they're quite intermittent. It's almost haphazard. And so the power of it is not really made manifest. What we're trying to do is actualize something we can do and do it more. Just do it again and do it again and get way lost somewhere else and then do it again. So it's very tangible. It's very practical. It's not something that is, is very far away. And to remind ourselves of that, to remind ourselves of what we know and to remind ourselves of what we really care about, we often say that we sit every day or we have a kind of commitment to a a dedicated period of practice to making it real. Because we all know it's so different to read about something or talk about something or think about something it's so different, all of that, from bringing it to life, to actually doing it. So when I went to India and entered this 10-day intensive retreat, never having sat before, I thought I really understood Buddhist teaching. I thought, wow, you know, I did term papers on this stuff. You know, I, I know all about, you know, what the Buddha said about attachment to pleasure and rejection of pain and and delusion and you know I really understand that stuff but it probably didn't take 15 minutes of looking at my knee pain for me to realize I don't know anything you know what was that about attachment to pleasure and rejection of pain it's so different it's so different and so one of the really precious gifts we give to ourselves is to try to sit every day, to make it real. And people often ask um, all kinds of questions about that. You know, like, how long should I sit, and should I sit in the same place every day, and should I sit at the same time every day? And in the end, I'm not sure any of that matters, except that we will learn for ourselves what helps us, what supports us, because the important thing is the doing of it. And I really believe the everydayness of it is is one of the most profound aspects of it because we can so easily slip off into that sense of distancing or, or deferring the good things of life to others. It's very hard for us to claim something for ourselves. And if you've only got five minutes in a certain day instead of an hour, use the five minutes because that's that's very important. Of course, what we see is that in a, a daily life sitting, because our lives are so complex usually and um, have different kinds of responsibilities and things we need to think about and so on, that the early part of that sitting is usually a complete mess, you know? I forgot to call so-and-so and then so-and-so forgot to call me and, you know, and my refrigerator's too loud and, you know, and that can't be right and But that's good, actually, to have that all kind of run through. It's really like a a de-stressing. Just let it pour through, pour out. But it's going to take a little while, and if we can sit longer than that little while, then we get the benefit of also getting quieter and being able to see more clearly the different elements of our experience. So to sit every day, and sit doesn't necessarily mean sit. Sit can mean walk. Of course, we shouldn't call it sit then, But (laughs) practice every day. I think, um, you know, sometimes people don't avail themselves of the possibility of doing walking meditation in a formal sense at home because it's just too strange or something, you know, to get up and walk back and forth in your bedroom or whatever. But that would be fine. Um, It's something about the dedication, and really the practice. To see what it's like when it is our knee pain, when it's our doubt, when it's our fear. To really move through all of those experiences. It's really, it's a very powerful thing. Aspiration and surrender come together in a sense of diligence. It's doing what we have to do right now because we have a big vision of who we can be, of what our lives can be about. We say practice every day, and practice no matter what it feels like. Certainly in daily life, concentration is very varied. Some days we feel very serene. Some days everything is tumultuous. We've got a big challenge happening, it's going to feel different all the time. But you have to think about splitting that piece of wood with an axe, you know? You just have to do it. That's the transformation. When I was living in India, I wasn't always on intensive retreat. I was living. And even there, sometimes it was difficult to have a daily practice because partly because of the tremendous habit of judgment that I had where if I sat down and things felt good and serene and, and lovely, I'd think, oh, good, I'm going to live here for the entire rest of my life. And when it was difficult and my back hurt or my knee hurt or I was bored or I was restless, I'd give up. I'd say, I can't do it. It's not working. And I'd just get up. So I finally went to one of my teachers, this man named Menindra, with that pattern, describing that pattern. And he said to me, for you, I have one piece of advice. And that is, just put your body there. He said, that's your job every day. Just put your body there. Some days it's going to feel one way, other days it's going to feel another way. There's no knowing, and there's not even any knowing how things are connected. Just put your body there. As uh, T.S. Eliot once wrote, he said, for us there is just the trying. The rest is not our business. There is something so immense in our willingness to try and to persevere and to open. That's what happens as we're hitting that piece of wood with the ax. That's the transformation. More than any experience we will have. That's what's important. So just put your body there. And what we find is that it's not just about experience that might happen now and then. When we're sitting, it's about how we change and and how we see lives, how, how connected we feel to a bigger picture of life. It's what happens naturally, inevitably, as we connect more and more strongly, more completely, to our own internal world. We discover the power of compassion. We discover the truth of constant change, which means new beginnings, it means renewal, it means opening, it means possibility. We discover the power of intention. Automatically. We have a a different kind of sense of things. One of the stories I often tell in teaching metta is about my uh, friend, colleague, Sylvia Borstein, who was teaching here one year and uh, then flew home to San Francisco, her plane stopping in Chicago en route. And she said that after the plane took off again from Chicago, they had been in the air for about 45 minutes when the pilot got on the PA system and said, now there's really nothing to worry about, but we've developed a little problem with the hydraulic system of our plane, and we're going to turn back to land in Chicago rather than fly over the Rockies without a fully functioning hydraulic system. And there's really nothing to worry about, and the flight attendants will now instruct you in the position to take in the event of an emergency landing, and <laughs> they're going to go around and take all of your uh, eyeglasses and all of the pens out of your pockets and all of your shoes. Um, I never understood that <laughs> last part until... A, Flight attendant said that you do that, you take away all that stuff in case someone has to go down an emergency chute so that nothing catches or tears. So they came around and took all Sylvia's stuff, and she was sitting there, and she decided to do loving-kindness practice. So she was doing the metta, repeating the phrases for those people in her life that personally she was closest to her husband, her children, their partners, and her grandchildren. And when she would get to her youngest grandchild, she would begin again by offering metta to her husband and just kind of go down the list. And and, uh, she said that, for some reason, the pilot would get back on the PA system every five minutes, and he'd say, we're going to be landing in 35 minutes. We're going to be landing in 30 minutes. We're going to be landing in 25 minutes. And each time she would hear him, and then she would just go back to doing the meta as she had been doing it. Then she said, he got on the PA system, and he said, we're going to be landing in five minutes. So she thought, in five minutes, I'll either be dead or I'll still be alive. And what she discovered as she went back to doing the metta was that with that thought in her mind, she actually found that she could not limit herself to doing metta to just those people she had been so close to uh, in life, but that she found she had to do metta for all beings everywhere, without exception. So she spent five minutes offering that sense of of loving kindness to all beings everywhere. And she said the plane landed... It was a landing just like any other landing, and they fixed whatever had gone wrong and then took off again and she got home. But I really like that story because I like the sense of that moment when she just couldn't. When whatever had been guiding her before was deeply influenced by the realization that she might die actually in five minutes. I love that sense that she just couldn't. And so naturally, without contrivance, without self-consciousness, without anything stylized or forced, she was in a different place of honoring that sense of connection to everybody. Because it's such a great feeling of naturalness in that moment. It's not like she was sitting there thinking, well, you know, I don't really feel like offering metta to everybody, but... You know, I am a Buddhist meditation teacher and what if I die in five minutes and anyone ever found out, you know, that like, I spent the last five minutes of my life, you know, not really thinking about all beings everywhere, you know. That would be kind of a disgrace. So I don't really want to, but, you know, I better. Or, you know, like no artifice, no pretense, nothing. She just couldn't. And that's actually what happens for us. So many, in so many arenas in so many ways. We find we just can't hold on in quite the same way, or push away, or disconnect, or lie, or hurt somebody. There's something in us that has grown to a place. We're in touch with something, some some kind of connection, some kind of love or awareness, where we just can't so much anymore. That means we doesn't mean we never can, but we learn, you know, and, and we're growing in that way. That's why what we do as we practice becomes something much bigger. It becomes such a strong influence in, in how we live and how we look at others. How we even create the idea of another how responsible we feel, how caring we feel. It happens as a result of the the vision, the truthful vision that is engendered by our seeing more clearly. My friend Bob Thurman, whom many of you know, uh, uses this example a lot when he's teaching. He's talking about, this is very New York, um, that works some other places too. He says, imagine you're in a subway, and these Martians come, and they zap the subway car so that those of you who are there in that subway are going to be together forever. Is what do you do? You know, somebody's hungry, you feed them. Somebody's freaking out, you try to calm them down. Because you're going to be together forever. Well, guess what? You know? There's there's a truth to that in a, a vision of life that is inclusive, that's connected, that's awake as opposed to being asleep or disconnected. We are together in that way. So we need to care about one another. This is like the basic or fundamental Buddhist teaching about morality. You know, which isn't kind of um stuffy or self-righteous or, or sanctimonious. It's about recognizing the truth of how connected we all are, that what we do matters, that it doesn't just disappear into some kind of void, that it ripples out along very vast waves of, of interconnectedness. It matters for us. We bear the consequences of, of how we've chosen to devote our energy and it matters to others. So it's not only, as I quoted earlier in the retreat, the Buddha saying, if you truly loved yourself, you'd never harm another. But we can feel a kind of empathy for others or a care about others. We know what it feels like when someone lies to us. and We don't want to do that. We don't want to create that, that kind of energy. I have a kind of signature story about that too, which is um, many years ago uh, I was living with some friends in western Massachusetts and um, one of my friends had gone to India to practice and she hadn't wanted her mother to know that she'd gone without her husband because she knew her mother would worry insanely. So she lied to her mother and said, well, her husband was going with her to India for a month. And um, she also said, if there's any kind of problem, uh, just call this number, you know, if there's an emergency and, and these people will know where to find me. And that happened to be the number of the house where I was staying. So about 24 hours before my friend was due home, her mother called and said, have you heard from my daughter or her husband? And um, her husband, strangely enough, had just been there for dinner. So the person who answered the phone forgot that we were supposed to lie, and so he said, "Oh yeah, he was just here for dinner." And then he went, "Oops," you know, and and she freaked out. The mother freaked out, and and uh, my friend started backtracking and saying, "Well, you know, he went to India, but uh, <laughs> you know, he had some business here. It suddenly came up. He had to come home." and And she was just, she was incredibly upset, you know, and, uh, you know, screaming, she's dead, I know she's dead, you know, and like, why won't you tell me the truth? And um, finally they got off the phone and and we realized that um, she was going to call some other friends that she had the numbers for as well. So then we had to call everybody first in order to tell them, well, this is the lie that you need to tell this woman when... She calls, and so she did that for a while, and then this perfect stranger started calling, which was the mother 's neighbor to whom she'd said, well they won 't tell me the truth, but maybe they 'll tell you the truth you know and so then, so then we had to call everybody again and say, "Well, you know this other one may call you," and just like you know and just like it was it was really very strange and um, in the middle of all of all that, we started getting these obscene phone calls out of nowhere, and it was very funny because in another circumstance, it might be the kind of time where you just, like, stop answering the phone for a while or something, but we had to keep answering the phone in case <laughs> we had to tell a lie to somebody, you know? And um, finally, somebody just couldn't bear it anymore, and she told this woman the truth. She said, look, I just have to tell you, he didn't go to India. She was afraid you would worry. She went alone. This is what happened. She's coming back tomorrow. It's fine. But by that time, the woman had been lied to so many times, it's like she couldn't discern, oh, this is the truth. And what was even more interesting to me was that I had lied so many times that I didn't know it was true anymore. You know, it went into that great fog of delusion somewhere. I thought, I don't know, (laughs) you know? Did he go in (gasps) there? You know, so we learned from from things like that. And we just don't want to do that. We don't want that to be our engagement in the world, our relationship to others. That's what happens when when we make that kind of commitment. We find that we wanna lead a, a kind of moral life, a life of connection. It's not always easy. You know, there are many, many times, there are many questions, there are many issues that are very difficult. They're very complex. But we don't necessarily want to take just the easy way or the convenient way or the familiar way. We want to live as someone who's awake, who's trying, who's caring. We find that we come to a much greater sense of being able to honor our intention in action when we practice because we can become aware of it when we sit or we walk or we have a kind of dedicated period of really looking inside, that whole realm of our motivation, our intention, becomes available for us to understand. And of course, in the Buddhist teaching, the intention behind an action is extremely important, because that's where the energy actually is, We can do the very same action from many, many different kinds of motivation, many different intentions, and it will be a different action, in fact. An example um, I often use is, you know, say I picked up this book and handed it to one of you. Um, I might be doing that from any number of places inside, any number of heart spaces inside. Maybe I'm offering you the book because you have a book I want. And I think, well, hey, you know, I'll give you this book and maybe you'll give me that book. Or maybe I'm offering you the book because, you know, that Lucy voice is um, awfully strong in me and I think, I don't deserve to have this book, you know. Let me just give it away. Or or maybe I'm giving it to you because I like you. Or uh, maybe... It's because I'm standing in front of a room full of people and I want everyone to think I'm very generous. There's so many different places inside that action could be coming from, but that's where the energy is. It's not in my hand moving down and kind of moving an object forward. So we use our practice to come to know that space of intention, of motivation, and to transform it. I say that the particular field that loving-kindness practice works in is the field of intention. So if in general we have been coming from a place of fear and anger and separation and we do a practice like loving-kindness, then in general we will come from a place of connection and care. We also use mindfulness in a kind of bigger sense, a broader sense, to understand the context within which we're acting. To pay attention, to learn, to listen, to be aware. So to continue on with that example, I may have a beautiful motive for giving you this book, and I might have to stop and think, well, wait a minute, there's only one book. You know maybe this is the kind of thing best done privately, or maybe I'll do it in this way, and you know to have that kind of care and sensitivity and, and mindfulness in a bigger context is also a gift of developing it in our practice. And then, just to continue the example, um, as the Buddha talked about action divided, uh, how it could be divided into the intention, the skillfulness or unskillfulness with which it's done. And then the third aspect of the action is the immediate result, especially in terms of praise or blame. So perhaps out of a, a beautiful motive, I decide to skillfully give you this book privately presented in this way with this written on the card and this comment and this smile. But you, you know, just pulled a note off the bulletin board on your way in here and and you found out you just won $156 million in the lottery And you couldn't care less about this book. You know, I hand it to you and you kind of nod distantly and you walk away, you know, happily spending your money in your mind. And, you know, what does that mean about me? You know, what does that mean about the quality of my heart or my act of generosity or how well I've done? Really nothing. But interestingly enough, it's the place that we tend to count on the most for our sense of integrity, for knowing who we are and how we've done which is why we suffer so much. The, it's almost like the uh, exhortation of the Buddha is to take back our sense of integrity, to land it on knowing our intention, on transforming our intention, to have wisdom, to have equanimity, to have peace about the truth of things, about the things that, that are outside of our control, that will change, that, that will Sometimes, strangely enough, that will take time for any kind of clarity about what we've done to actually reveal itself. Sometimes you hand somebody that book and they nod distantly and they walk away and five years later they come up to you and say, you know, it's really funny, you gave me that book and it meant nothing to me. And then I just had this really bad thing happen, you know, and this terrible misfortune. And I picked it up. It's so interesting. It was exactly what I needed. How many times does that happen? It happens. We need that kind of perspective to understand our actions, to know that both in our our practice in the formal sense and in the the manifestation of our practice in life through care and commitment and, and morality and compassion. Things take time. It's a mystery. We have to open. We have to let go. And when we're lucky, then we come to understand things in a much bigger picture. I'll just close with this story, which is about when we uh, first moved into the center. Um, we were here for about a month when we received two letters that were remarkable for how they were addressed. The first, instead of being addressed to the Insight Meditation Society, was addressed to the Instant Meditation Society. (laughs) And that was really fun, you know. Um, That was my favorite for a while, because I used to look at the envelope and think, what were they thinking, you know? And my mind went everywhere to a kind of dehydrated kit where you add water and you get instant meditation. <laughs> but of course, that's our, that's our cultural norm. You know, that's our normative value. If it doesn't happen instantly, it's not worth it. And then the other le- letter, which is much more my current favorite, instead of being addressed to the Insight Meditation Society, was addressed to the Hindsight Meditation Society. <laughs> and, And that, I still, I really, really love that. And we're heading on toward our 30th anniversary in a few years. So sometimes I think, well, we should, you know, not change the name, but, you know, get T-shirts or something like that that say the Hindsight (laughs) Meditation Society. Because it is so true, isn't it? You know, I know in my practice, my meditation practice, there have been so many times when I thought, this is going nowhere, you know, this is just dry, this is meaningless only to look back later and say, isn't that interesting? You know, that was actually forming the foundation for this other thing to happen. But I couldn't have guessed at the time. Or even that really hurt. That was a really, really hard time. But it opened me in some way that was so important for this other thing to happen. And we see it in our lives too, like giving someone that book, making an effort, showing up, We hardly know at the time what the results will be. So we need to have that kind of immense vision, that that sense of openness and and a great allegiance to the Hindsight Meditation Society. (laughs) Okay, Let's sit together for a few minutes. Thank you um please continue your practice through you know tonight and uh till you go to sleep <laughs> um and then tomorrow morning and as was probably announced, we'll have the first sitting after breakfast at nine o'clock instead of eight thirty so um we'll we'll sit and uh close the retreat at that point. Thank you.